You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 27. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said, to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your grace this morning that you would be pleased to teach us, O Father, from your word. That, Father, you would open up your word to our hearts and our hearts and turn to your word. That, Father, as we proceed, you, we would find ourselves not hearing the voice of a man this morning, but hearing your voice speaking to us, O Father. Now, speak to us, we pray. And give us, O Father, the, the volition, the will, the desire, Father, that as we come to understand that, Father, we'd be willing to put into practice that which you're teaching us. Make us more and more like Jesus, we pray, in his precious name. Amen and amen. In our text this morning, there are all kind of places where we can get confused. Um, there are a number of principles that are being introduced to us in Genesis 17, and if we don't grasp these principles properly, we're, we're going to find ourselves in confusion as we continue on in the Word of God. It's a lot like algebra. I don't know how many of you have had algebra before, but um, when you're studying algebra, if you, if you miss some of the fundamentals early on, well then, guess what? Um, the, the, the curriculum just builds on those principles. If you don't have them principles down, then you're just a, you're in a dreadful mess as you begin uh, to try to implement those principles. In many ways, Genesis 17 is like that. Let me give you a couple of examples. On the surface, Genesis 17 may appear to be a new covenant. It sounds like a new covenant in many ways. I, I mean, right from the start, the Lord tells Abram to be blameless that he may what? Make his covenant with him. Kind of sounds new. Um, the Lord repeatedly uses the word covenant. So Genesis 17 may sound like a new covenant. Um, if we take it that way, we're going to end up in some confusion. Um, here's another example, and I don't. Th we're not going to get to this this morning, but if you look at verse 10, there the Lord says to Abram, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, a cursory reading of verse 10 may lead us to conclude that the covenant is circumcision itself. You follow what I'm saying? But the covenant is circumcision itself. Now, this will lead to a false understanding of circumcision, a false understanding of the covenant. This is actually even a more dangerous error. Um, here's another one. Very clearly, the, an emphasis is on a response of obedience on Abram's part in Genesis 17. We haven't seen this so far, where his response has been so emphasized um, in fact, really, um, this is really the first chapter where a response from Abraham is really being emphasized. Um, here we can really, really go afoul uh, if we're not careful. So there are many others that I could point out to you. I think I get, I, 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 I raise these to you just to make my point. So before we go any further, we need to sort this out so as to remove confusion. I mean, these principles are... They, they need to, it's like the algebra lesson. They need to be very clear in our minds. 
we need to be able to put these in our minds so that as we encounter these things, we're not even really thinking about them anymore. We're seeing, okay, I, I got it, just like in your algebra lesson. You get those early principles down so that as you see those things, you know what to do. So what I want to do this morning is to begin to sort some of this stuff out because a misstep here in chapter 17 is going to lead us to a mess very quickly. And what I want to do, I, I, we can't take all these principles in one message. That would be a, a mistake. I, I really only want to look at two principles uh, this morning. And I'm going to give them the terms unity and uh, conditionality. Unity and conditionality. Now, I realize that... Um, Having said unity and conditionality, I realize that not many of us are going to be jumping up in our seat. Oh, I got it. Okay, thank you so much. Unity and conditionality. Well, <laughs> I got it. They're abstract terms, aren't they? Um, they're, they're very abstract. You know, when you study theology, you begin, you begin to get used to wrestling with abstraction. And you begin to, do, to uh, learn some of these terms that express that abstraction, and before long, you start talking in a way that unless you're talking to somebody who is used to the same discipline, uh, they'll start to not even understand what you're talking about, uh, and confusion can result. I mean, this happens in every discipline. I mean, a doctor who has yet to hone his or her uh, bedside skills may sit down with a patient and begin to rattle off Latin terms after Latin terms, and, and then when he leaves the room, the the, the 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 patient and the loved ones are sitting there like what in the world was that all about I don't know doesn't sound very good um, so um, we want to try to avoid that um, the second problem here is is related you know when folks don't clearly understand when we don't clearly understand we have a tendency to assign meanings. Our brains kind of do that. If we come into something and we don't understand, well, then our brains are kind of like, okay, we need to, we need to fill in the blank here. The brain's trying to fill in the blank. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what they're talking about, unity, unity and conditionality. Well, let's just, go ahead and, let's just go ahead and put a meaning in there so we can move on. Our brains want to do that. They've been doing that since we were kids. You know, case in point, two young boys are called into the principal's office. And the principal says something to to them like, young men, do you realize that you're currently being censured and you can expect a demerit? Now, as the two, you, two young boys are leaving the principal's office, one young boy says to the other, what in the world is a, is a censure? And what in the world is a demerit? The other boy says, I don't know, but it sounds like we're in trouble, trouble, trouble. Okay, what's going on with their little brains? They don't know what censure means. They don't know what demerit means. They're going to get it figured out soon from the sounds of things. But their, their, their minds are looking at the context of things, and they're trying. They're, your, our brains will do that. They'll try to fill in the blank. Now, I, want to, I don't want our minds doing that on these terms. We have to get these terms down so much that we're not even thinking about them anymore as we go through Scripture. Uh, so... I'm going to use these two terms, unity and conditionality, and someone might ask, um, why would you use these terms? Why would you use unity and conditionality? And I'm glad you asked that question. I was really hoping one of you would. Um, there's three reasons. First, we need a place to put things. 
we need a place to put things. An organized person, um, especially someone who's really organized, they always know where to put everything. I had a fellow that worked for me one time. Um, he had that skill uh, really in, in an unusual way. I would give him something because I don't really always have that skill. I would give him something and I would say, hey, you know these little springs, could you, do, could you put them somewhere we'll know where they're at? Really effortlessly, he, he would just take them. And I could ask him like the next day, I could ask him six weeks later, I could ask him a year later, hey, those springs I gave you, oh yeah, here. And he would produce them right away. Why? Because he was he's very organized. How, why, one of the, I watched him, I studied him. One of the things that... One of the reasons why he was so organized is he knew where to put things. He knew where to place things. And um, by, you, by giving you these terms, I'm giving you some place to put these. I want to use the word unity and the word conditionality to form pegs in your mind so that you can hang the things I'm about to give you on those pegs so that you know where those things are. But secondly, why would we use these terms because you're going to encounter them in discussions concerning our text. You might, you, 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 the discussion could take place in the coffee shop, it could taste, take place on the blogosphere, it could take place in books, but you'll encounter these words being used concerning the Abrahamic covenant. And let me give you a third reason. There's a third reason, and it has to do with understanding our Bibles. We could have just used that one, that'd be good enough. Uh, understanding our Bibles, understanding the continuity of the Old and New Testaments, understanding the major storyline, identifying the thread, if you will, that goes all the way through Scripture. However you want to put it, it's going to help us understand that. So with this introduction in mind, and without running the risk of belaboring this introduction, um, let's start with our first. Let's start with unity. What is unity? If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll discover that uh, it, it reads something like, quote, the state of being united or joined as a whole. The state of being united or joined as a whole. Or another definition is uh, the state of forming a har harmonious whole. Yeah. Um, I, I like to use the words um, continuity and discontinuity. Maybe it's because of my electronics background. I, I have this meter in my toolbox. It's got leads coming out of it, and it has a continuity test. And when you put it on continuity test, if you touch the leads together, it beeps. Some of you have those in your homes. Uh, sometimes you'll refer to it as the beep check. I don't know if anyone knows that line. But if you, if you take these leads and you put them on a circuit, if the circuit is closed, if there's unity, if there's continuity, it'll be... If there's a break in the thread, if you will, if there's a break in the circuit, it won't. Um, so continuity. If it beeps, you've got continuity. If it doesn't beep, you've got um, you've got discontinuity. So what is unity? It's this idea of having this harmonious whole. Now, why is this important? Well, let me begin to answer this question with another question. Um, just ask yourself this: Do the events that are taking place in Genesis 17 have anything to do with you? Do they have anything to do with me? Do they have anything to do with us? In other words, is the meter going beep? Is there continuity between what God is doing with Abraham 4,000 years ago and with our lives 
today. When we leave here this morning, I want everybody to be able to say yes, there is to that. And I, I realize right now some of you already know the answer to this, but some of you, uh, some of you believe there's continuity. In fact, I would be willing to, to guess that everybody in the room believes there's continuity. But you might be asking yourself, well, I believe there's continuity. I believe that what God is doing with Abraham, yes, it has something to do with me, but I really don't know what that might be. Um, I, I want to try to answer that question uh, this morning so that when we leave here this morning, we can say, wow, this is what this has got to do with me. Now, we have spent uh, many weeks on the life of Abram. You know, you'll, you'll recall he's introduced to us all the way back in chapter 11 where God calls Abram out of pagan idolatry. And, you know, there, there were... I, I read one estimate. There was probably 100,000 people, you know, in the vicinity where Abram was called uh, out of um, Babylon, basically. Uh, God could have chosen any one of those folks. Um, he didn't. He chose Abram. And when God chose Abram, he made promises to him. If you turn to Genesis 12.2 with me, Genesis 12.2 there you'll recall the promises that God made to Abram. If you look at verse 2, there you'll see that God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse him who dishonors you. Um, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So here we have this kind of group of promises uh, given right here, this cluster of promises. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about what's going on here that are pertinent to Genesis 17. And the first is that a relationship is being formed. God is forming a relationship. Secondly, God is making promises. We have a relationship and we have promises are being made. A relationship where promises are being made. We could summarize these promises this way. God promises Abraham descendants. I mean, he's going to be a great nation. Well, you can't be a great nation without offspring. And you can't have offspring without a son. So a son is being promised. Um, God promises to bless Abram's name. He promises to protect Abram. God promises that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. God promises Abram land. Now, if you turn to Genesis 13, 14, and you look at verse 14, where the Lord says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Well, here we see the same promises being made again, don't we? where God has, after a period of time, coming to Abram, and he is basically stating those promises again. He's reminding Abraham, uh, not of new promises, but of promises that he's already made, and he's saying in slightly different ways, in order that uh, Abram uh, might be assisted in his faith, that he might learn more and more about those same promises. We have the promise of offspring here. Um, I will, I'm going to give you, look, at you look, look, look everywhere that you can see, Abram. The land that you can see, I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to give to your offspring. 
So there's a promise of offspring. It necessitates a son. So God's promising a son to Abraham. He's promising him a son. Now, God also promises numerous descendants. Verse 16, I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. What in the world could that possibly have to do with us? When we leave here this morning, I want everyone to know the answer to that question. Now, notice these promises are, not, are really the same promises given in chapter 12. They're just fleshed out a bit. In other words, there's unity. There's continuity here between Genesis 12 and following. In Genesis 14, God, he, he actually begins to make good on one of the promises that He has given to Abram. He promises Abram, I'm going to make your name great. And what does He do in Genesis 14? Some of you recall when we were studying that chapter that Lot gets carried away by these kings that come down and sack everything and carried away. And what does Abram do in response to that? With 318 men, he goes up and he conquers a king that nobody's been able to conquer, grabs all the goodies, brings them back, and returns them to their owners. Now, what do you suppose that does to the otherwise unknown Abraham? He becomes well-known. And he's not only well-known, but greatness is attached to his name. You can see continuity with Genesis 14. Genesis 15, by then, Abram's wavering in his faith and... This is understandable because many years have gone by and he still doesn't have a son and he's not getting any younger. So there he is wavering and the Lord cuts a covenant with Abram. You remember that strange ceremony where Abram cuts the animals in half and he lays them in places, you know, and that whole thing would have been known to us if we lived in that time as cutting a covenant where uh, two parties would cut these animals in half, lay halves on either side, they would make promises and then they would pass between the halves. And what they were saying is this, if I don't keep this promise, then let me be like these halves. And the interesting thing about Genesis 15 is that Abram doesn't pass between the halves, does he? Only God does. Only God does. Um, well, what is God doing? He's... He's answering Abram's weakness with the covenant ceremony. Hold on to this really tightly. God answers our frailty, our feebleness, and our weakness with His covenant. A lot of times we hear covenant and we think, covenant, that sounds like legal. That sounds uh, like something you do with an attorney. There is a lot of legality there. There is a legal aspect there. But what's different about the covenants that God makes is they're warm. They're loving. You realize God's Word is as sound, as certain, as sure as anything. I remember being with a businessman one time. We went into a parts store to buy some parts. And... This man was pretty well known in that whole town. And the, the, the amount wasn't very much, and he pulled out his checkbook and began to write a check. And the attendant said, sorry, we can't take any checks. And I remember thinking, wow. Because quite frankly, a check from this man is like having cash in the bank. And everybody, I thought, in the town knew that. 
he looked over the, it was as a, in that day, you have to remember, it's not like it is today. It was a different time. He overlooked the offense. He put his checkbook away and he got out cash and paid for it. God's word is certain. It's for sure. But Abram is weak. And he's weak in his faith. And what does God do? He gets out the ceremony. And God himself passes between the halves. In other words, God submits himself to the ceremony. And in essence, what God's saying is, Abram, I'm making these promises with you. And if you have any doubt about this, let's cut a covenant. Here, I've already made a covenant with you in Genesis 12, but let's do it. I mean, here, let's do it. God passes between the halves. This is an answer to Abram's wavering faith. But the promises of Genesis 15 are the same promises, offspring and land. It's the same promises. Now, when we get to Genesis 16, we find Abram and Sarah at their lowest, as I've been saying, and we find them taking promises of God into their own hands. And about 10 years have gone by, and they still don't have any son. Let's try not to be too hard on this couple. You know, they're aging. They're getting older. There's still no son. And Sarai decides to give her servant Hagar to Abram, and he takes her in marriage, and they have Ishmael. And um, the last time, uh, two weeks ago, I pointed out to you that when, when we look at Genesis 16 at the very end, between Genesis 16 and Genesis 17, 13 years go by. Do you recall that discussion? 13 years go by. Um, so uh, here we find um, Abram and Sarai really um, at their lowest point in terms of their faith. And the Lord comes to Abram and he promises him. Look at Genesis 17 and verse 6. He comes to him and he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. You see the continuity in that promise with all the promises that God has been making? It's just fleshed out more. Um, in verse 8, we have a promise of land. So you can see these are the same promises back in Genesis 12. The only difference is they're being fleshed out a bit here and a bit there. Now, I want you to see that this is all the same covenant. That's the point I'm trying to make. I don't want you to just take my word for it. I'm going carefully through all this so you can see these points of, of continuity, these points of unity, if you will. In this relationship, we have the same parties in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, uh, 15, 17, same parties, God and Abram, same parties, same promises, same covenant. But the unity extends beyond Genesis 12 and 17. I mean, Abram and Sarah will have a son. Most of you know this story. His name is Isaac. We just read about it. And Isaac's going to have sons. And one of his sons will be Jacob. And Jacob's name's going to be changed to Israel. And Israel is going to have uh, uh, 12 sons born to him. It would be 12 tribes. One of those tribes, whose name is Judah, uh, out of Judah will come a, whole, a long string of kings. Uh, the greatest of, of, of er, mere earthly kings is King David. And a promise is made to David uh, that he will have a son and one of his sons will sit on his throne for all eternity. So um, here we see there's 12, 12 tribes. These 12 tribes will receive promised land. Abram's name gets changed to Abram. Abraham's name becomes great. 
So we see there's unity in the Old Testament here. It's pretty easy to see the unity in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Is there unity between um, what God is doing with Abram and um, the New Testament? Well, we can answer that question first by looking backwards. Let's look backwards briefly, then we'll look forward. What are we looking backwards for? Let me ask a question that I've been asking through this whole series over and over and over again. Where is Genesis 3.15? Now, why do I ask that question over and over again? Because Genesis 3.15 is the gospel, right? Genesis 3.15 is the promise of a son who's going to come and deliver his people. In other words, when I ask, where is Genesis 3.15? What am I asking? I'm asking, where is the gospel in this? Because I want to know where the gospel is in this. Because the argument I'm making is we only have one gospel through the whole Bible. We don't have two gospels or three or five. We've got one gospel. Where's Genesis 3.15? Well, Genesis 3.15 is a promise of a son. And now someone might be sitting here thinking, okay, I got this one, promise of a son. Well, God's been making a promise to Abram all along of have a son, isn't he? Yes. Yes. There's Genesis 3.15. And Abram has a son to Sarai. His name's Isaac. And he's a forerunner. And Isaac has a son. And his son has a son. And his son has a son. And down the line we go. So we look backwards. We see the promise of a son. And we see the promise of the, of the son going through the continuity of the promise of a son going all the way through the Old Testament. And then we get to the New. Turn with me to the first page of the New Testament, which is Matthew chapter 1. First page of the New Testament. Matthew 1 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the first page of the New Testament. And this is the first sentence of the first page of the New Testament. And in the first page of the New Testament, in the first verse of the New Testament, we read these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, what? The son of Abram, son of Abraham. Now, the first thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to know, when we turn to the New Testament, the first order of business is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of David, that he is the son of Abram. Why is that the first order of business by the way of the Holy Spirit? It's because of Genesis 3.15. Why bring Abraham in it? Because of the promises of Genesis 12, the promises of Genesis 13, the promises of Genesis 15 the promises of Genesis 17. It's because this is the thread, folks. This is the thread that runs through the whole Scripture. That's what's going on. This is the storyline. If we don't pick this up, we're going to have a terrible time trying to put all 66 of these books together. Have you ever had that? Have you ever wondered how, how, what's Ruth got to do with this? What has Esther got to do with this? What do some of these other books? Nehemiah. How does Nehemiah fit into this? We've got one thread. You see, we've got to get these principles down or we're going to be 
in a mess. So there's direct continuity between what God is doing in Genesis 17 and Jesus of Nazareth. And I, and I could put it this way, there's direct continuity between the covenant that God is making with Abram and you and I. We could call it the Abrahamic covenant. We could also call it the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. In other words, what we have here in Scripture is unity, a thread that runs through the entire Bible, a covenant of grace, wherein God promises to bless His people by providing them a Savior. Is that simple enough? Now, um, I've really run myself short on time to take up the second point. I'll just do it briefly, and we'll have to pick up more as we go along. But the first word's unity. Is that clear now, that we have unity all the way through? You see why it's important? We're think, I just want you to have one word in your mind, hanging in your mind as you read the Bible. There's unity. There's continuity. There's unity. We need to put it into one word so that we can post that in our minds and we always have that principle as we're reading and studying our Bibles. Now, conditionality. This is another really important one because this one can get really muddy. One of the ways we can really run afoul here in Genesis 17 concerns the emphasis that Genesis 17 puts on Abram's response. You know, if you look at Genesis 17 verses 1 to 2 with me, if you look there again, there we read these words, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, quote, I am God Almighty, Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now here we might be tempted to say, wait, this sounds like a new covenant. Because in, in the past, this emphasis on, on Abram's response is not like Genesis 15. I mean, Abram stood and watched God pass between the halves. But we come to Genesis 17 here, and here we see these, these conditions. Uh, so, okay, what do we do with this? Genesis 15, there's no conditions given to Abram. In fact, Abram, he cuts the animals in half, and he stands back and he watches, and God passes between the halves. What do we make of that? Well, the, what we're to make upon that is that the covenant will always rest, not on our merits, Never. Never. Do you realize how bad we need that lesson? Never. What did I say? Can I hear it again? Never. Never. Our hearts are always wanting to say, no, but there's this one thing. No, there isn't this one thing. That's why we need Genesis 15. God is getting in our heads saying, look, Abram stood. He watched God. He passed between the halves. That's the lesson of Genesis 15. But Genesis 17 is teaching us another lesson concerning the same covenant. And that lesson occur, is in regards to our response. Does Abram just sit and watch and do nothing? No. Abram has to receive the promises with faith, doesn't he? And that's the lesson of Genesis 17. Abram is getting a new lesson concerning the same covenant that has already been made. And here's the lesson. Abram must receive the promises with faith, but not with a faith that lacks obedience. This is so common today to say, I believe in Jesus, and that belief in Jesus be nothing more than merely mental assent. I believe in Jesus. The same way I believe that George Washington was the first president. That's not saving faith. Faith. 
Saving faith is walking before the God, walking before God blameless. Now wait a second. Don't anybody think I just said saving faith is being perfect? God comes to Abram in Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, and he says, walk with me and be blameless that I may make my covenant with you. Has Abram been blameless? Do you, do you see that the, the items that the Holy Spirit are giving us about Abram are selective? And the Holy Spirit has been showing us things about Abram's life that are like unbelievable. And if that's all that if that's all that the Holy Spirit would show us, then we would think, well, Abram, he's this guy that walks blamelessly before the Lord. But the Holy Spirit hasn't been pleased to do that. The Holy Spirit's also shown us some things about Abram that aren't so glorious. So that we can conclude here that whatever it means to be blameless, it can't mean perfect. Well, if it doesn't mean perfect, then what does it mean? I'll give you a word, a single word. It's the word integrity. Integrity. That's how we're to understand that. If you want just one word to understand it, it's the word integrity. Abram really truly is a man who, who he's wavering in his faith. He has high points, he has low points, but there's one thing that's always, always certain of Abram. He is determined to follow the Lord. He has a principle in his heart that has this determination to follow the Lord. And that's the difference between saving faith and its counterfeit. Mental ascent says, well, this all sounds good, and I'm going to put it up with my exercise program, and I'm going to put it up with my diet, and I know it's the way I should go. Whereas saving faith doesn't do anything of the kind. Saving faith knows now my life has to be different. I, God has to be at the center of my life. And a person who has saving faith has grief in the same time. What is the grief all about? The grief all about is that I can't seem to keep God always at the center of my life the way I would want to. But where the integrity comes in is that there's always an effort to try. You walk for a while, you fall down, and you get back. I got to get back in the center. You get back in, and you walk, and you fall, and you get back in. That's what God's calling Abram to do here. That's what he's calling him to do. That has everything to do with us. You can see the unity here. When Paul preaches the gospel in Romans, and when he preaches the gospel in Galatians, both times, as he answers the question, how are we saved? Both times, he appeals to the Abrahamic covenant. And he says that Abraham believed, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and he was credited to him as what? Righteousness. It's the same, same. You see the unity? It's the same, same. Justification by faith, Genesis 15. Justification by faith. It's not justification by works in Genesis 17. No. It's justification by faith in Genesis 17. Justification by faith in Romans 4. Justification by faith in Galatians 3. And in preaching the gospel, Abram appeals to what God is doing with Abram in our text. And this is how Paul could write in Galatians 3 and verse 8. If you'd turn there with me. I ask you to turn there because I have that's our Scripture memory verse. And I have one other verse I want to show you in Galatians 3 as well. Galatians 3 verse 8. 
Galatians 3, verse 8. Mm -hmm. Galatians 3, verse 8. Notice what we have here. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the what? Does it say he preached a gospel? I don't think. What's it say? It's the gospel. You see, there's one. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying what? Genesis 12. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. See the unity? And this is how Paul could write in Galatians 3 and verse 29. Look down to verse 29 with me. If you are Christ, then you are what? You're Abram's offspring. You're heirs according to what? That same promise that's running through the Scriptures, starting in Genesis 3.15 and fanning out through Revelation 22. See the unity? What's this have to do with you and me? If you're in Christ this morning, if you're in Christ this morning, oh, if you're in Christ this morning, you are part of the promises that God is making to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17. When Abram says, or God says to Abram, Abram, look up at the stars. Can you count them, Abraham? No, I can't count them. I, I can't, they're too many. Well, that's the way your descendants are going to be. There's even this gang, you know, in 2018 who will meet in Chester. Yeah, there's, there, there, there's this gang in Chester. They're your kids, Abram. They're your kids in the faith. What does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. The greatest gift that you have ever received and I have ever received is being promised in Genesis 17. The greatest gift that you've ever received is being promised in Genesis 17. What's the condition? Well, the, con the condition, the reason I want you to understand, you understand the unity. I want you to understand the condition because condition is greasy. Let me tell you why condition is greasy. It's greasy because it depends on context. If someone comes to me and says, listen, this is, is the covenant of grace conditional or isn't it conditional? then I have to ask, before I say yes or no, I have to say, what do you mean by condition? Do you mean that I have to jump through hoop A, B, C, and D to become a member of the covenant, then it's unconditional? And sometimes you'll read where it's said it's unconditional. And if it's that way, then yes, it's unconditional. In terms of merit, I can't do anything to merit this. You see, that's Genesis 15. If you have any questions about that, go to Genesis 15 and ask yourself, what is Abram doing? He's watching God meet the conditions, the meritorious conditions. But if someone says, what do I do, got to do to get in? Is there any conditions about getting in? Then the answer is yes. Don't you like these the yes-no questions? Well, then the answer is yes, you have to have faith. 
If you don't have any faith, you're not in. So we have to get that sorted out, and we have to always have that sorted out. So is there, Genesis 17 protects us from this error. Is there a responsibility that Abraham must take up? The answer is yes. He must walk with God and be blameless. That's the answer. Now, how is he going to walk with God and be blameless? He's going to do it by faith in the promises. That's how he's going to do it. So is there a responsibility that you and I must take up? The answer is yes. We're to do the same thing as our father Abraham did. That's what Jesus tells the Pharisees. If you, were, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. Namely, you'd be trusting in the father and walking with him. Is this works righteousness? No. Genesis 15 protects us from that. You see? No. It's not upon our merits that we're saved. You and I don't pass between the halves. God does. It's upon Christ's merits that we're saved. So we have unity and conditionality. This covenant that God has made with Abram has everything to do with us. Is that kind of clear? Hopefully, it's given to strengthen us, to bless us, to, to instruct us, to show us. Just think of all of this. How much God has loved us to go through all of this, to so carefully teach us and train us. It's absolutely amazing how much effort he's brought to safely bring us into his eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all of these things, Father. We thank you and praise you, Father, that, Lord, you've went through all of these things, even to coming yourself in the person of Jesus Christ and that you would go to the cross, that you would die on the cross, that you would be raised on the third day, in fulfillment of promises that you've made so many, many years ago. Father, we thank you for all of these things. We praise you for all of these things, Father. And oh, Father, we pray that you apply these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.